بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا في كما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكملان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا ونفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما وألحقنا بالصالحين يا رب العالمين Alhamdulillah, this is the third session on Module 6, covering the Fiqh of Zakat. And we have one more class after tonight, inshallah, where we talk about the recipients of Zakat and related matters. So this is really the final class on the ins and outs of Zakat. And a lot of what we're going to cover tonight, I wouldn't say is Fard'ain for people to know, unless their money and their finances are tied up in these various ways, in which case they will need to know how to calculate and pay zakat on these things. So, so far we've learned the values, the virtues and wisdoms of zakat. We looked at the, recommend, the, the promises of Allah Ta'ala and rewards for zakat and the divine threats for not paying zakat. And we talked about the basics of how zakat is collected and paid. We looked at the terms that we need to know. Zakat, sadaqah, nisab, dinar, dirham, fitr, mithqal, hawl, and so on. And then we looked at the conditions for the obligation of zakat. And then zakat on gold, silver, and currencies. The last class, last week, that is the foundation class, really. Understanding how to pay zakat and calculate it is based on how we calculate the nisab based on the uh, based on gold. Uh, but there's gold, zakat on gold, zakat on silver, zakat on currencies. But the currencies are pegged to gold or silver. To what do we peg the zakat of currencies? To the gold or silver? Gold. The majority say gold. Uh, Imam al-Shafi'i, their madhab's position is that it's silver. So tonight we have some learning objectives, uh, basically four things we want to know. We want to know the difference between liquid assets and illiquid assets. So you think liquid is something that flows easily, as opposed to illiquid, something that doesn't flow. We're going to talk about how to calculate and pay zakat on the following liquid assets. Shares, mutual funds, slash index funds, dividends, 401ks, IRAs, etc., cryptocurrency, all of these are considered liquid assets. And we're gonna learn how to calculate and pay zakat on the following illiquid assets, real estate, artwork, collectibles, investments in privately held companies, also business merchandise, and we're going to know how to calculate and pay zakat on that inventory, whether it is dead and obsolete or current. There's a lot to cover here, and I want to say that for if you're in this class and you don't have you don't have shares, you're not you know, you're not a, a real you're not a real estate investor. You don't have shares. Uh, you're not engaged in cryptocurrency holding or buying. You don't have any Bitcoin or any of that kind of stuff. Then a lot of these details aren't relevant to you 
especially the stuff on the shares. But if you have a job where you are contributing to a 401k, then this is important for you to know how to pay zakat, how to determine that zakat, and the different approaches to how you pay zakat on that 401k. Do you do it every year or do you wait until later? There's different approaches we're going to talk about inshallah ta'ala. Uh, so this thing is a little jumpy today. All right. So just briefly, let's talk about liquid versus illiquid assets. I think the picture in the slide illustrates it very nicely. That is illiquid until that ice melts and then it's liquid in the sense that it's water and you also have your $100 bill. But liquid, when we say liquid assets, we mean gold, silver, currency of any kind, or something that can quickly be converted to cash. So it's easy to get rid of, to sell it, to dispose of it. It's not a problem. Illiquid is obviously the opposite of that. It is something that cannot be quickly converted to cash. Illiquid assets are those assets whose price is not readily determinable from the market. So there's no open market where that thing has an average price point. It's not fungible. The value is only determined if you negotiate a price and you finalize it through a sale. It's not readily disposable. It's illiquid. And illiquid assets include lots of tangibles that don't have set prices. Things like artwork. If you have a Picasso and you're holding it as a store of value, you, you can't just go down the street and sell it at the flea market. I mean, you could, and that person would take a nice price and make millions off of you. But the point I'm making is if you're going to sell it properly, there is a process for it. Artwork, real estate, collectibles, that 65 Mustang we spoke about last week. If you're holding it as a collectible to, to hold value and eventually sell, it's illiquid. It's a process to get rid of that. Antiques that you hold as a store of value, investments in privately held companies because you don't have immediate access to that, and obsolete or dead business inventory, meaning you, know, you have a store and you have, a, you have a, a warehouse for goods that you sell, and some of them are defunct, out of date, inoperable, and no one's going to buy them, but they're your investments, but you just can't sell them. That's called dead merchandise. So these are all examples of illiquid assets. There's approach, an approach for us to pay zakat on liquid assets and an approach for illiquid assets. Whether we pay zakat on them or not, and if so, how do we determine what that's going to be? So of all of these, we start with shares. I would advise everyone to just consult these slides and not bother with me just reading from them here. Because this is very technical. It's beyond my expertise and experience. So I'm basically consulting with the experts, putting their findings here about how you can calculate and determine your zakat if you have stocks. So for these kinds of uh, methods, it's better for you to consult a specialist if you're in the market to determine how to calculate them. There are some tried and true methods, but this is not my experience. It's not my area of expertise. And this highlights the importance of knowing the difference between fiqh and fact. 
You can know the fiqh of zakat inside and out. You can study that from the classical text, but it's not always so easy to apply the fiqh to something in the modern day until you know the ins and outs of that modern day financial instrument or means of commerce and whatnot. You have to know the ins and outs of that and what it means in order to determine how the fiqh of zakat will apply to it, right? So for stocks, there are, they are considered liquid assets. And that's because you are able to sell them and trade them. So they're, all, they're effectively like cash, which means you have to determine the value and pay zakat accordingly. Now, this is not even talking about the legality of, of stocks, whether it's haram or halal. All of this assumes that if a person has shares, that they are for companies that are basically halal, not involved in haram, and the debt to profit ratio is, is good. So that's not even discussed here. Now, assuming that you're holding stock over time, uh, whether it's an individual stock or a mutual fund or index fund, you're treating all of those things the same for the purpose of zakat. So for stocks that you hold for more than a hawl, you're basically a passive investor. So you want to look at the balance sheet. Now the balance sheet, you can just go online. You can go online and you can type up balance sheet for and put in the code for whatever company you have stock in. And with that balance sheet, you can determine the company's assets and liabilities and the shareholder equity at any given time. And it's from that that you're able to determine what the zakat will be. And there's a, an elaborate process for this. And I just present to you uh, what those specialists have shared. The idea is that you use the balance sheet that you can find online for whatever company you have shares in. And with that balance sheet that shows you the assets, the liabilities, and the shareholder equity, you determine the cash and the cash equivalents, you determine the receivables and the inventories, right? What are those? Where do you find them? I don't know. I don't have any stock, so I don't, I don't go to balance sheets and do this kind of stuff. But this is what you would do. You basically add them together and you divide by the total number of shares issued by the company. Then you're going to multiply that by the number of shares that you own. So for number one, you have cash and cash equivalents, letter C. Number two is receivables, R. Number three, I. So C, R, I. C plus R plus I divided by the outstanding shares, and this is what you'll get. Company X, for instance, have six billion outstanding shares, and you own 100. When you go to the balance sheet, you find that the cash and cash equivalents equal 15 billion, the, receivable, the receivables equal 17 billion, and the inventories are 3 billion. So that's 35 billion divided by 6 billion, and with 100 shares, that means it's $583.34 of zakat. If you ever, you know, because people sometimes come to me for help on zakat issues, if you ever come with stock issues, I'm just going to send you away, because I don't have the ability to determine these things. It's all like Chinese to me, to be honest. So consult with an expert. It doesn't even have to be a Muslim. Just go to an expert, someone who knows how to determine the balance sheet to determine these percentages for you 
and you can get those numbers, inshallah. So if this is all <laughs> over your head, like because you don't have shares, then don't worry about it. And if you have shares and this seems new to you, keep the slides as a reference. Consult with experts to determine what those numbers might be. But if you have shares, you do need to determine what that number is going to be every single year. You can't just hold stocks for year after year after year and you're earning on that. You're making money off of that investment as a passive investment and you're not paying zakat on it. Why? Because it's liquid. If you wanted to wake up one morning and just sell all of the stock all at once, you could do so. That means it's liquid. That means you have to pay zakat on it every hawl, every lunar year. That means you have to determine every single year what's that, what that number is going to be based on how many uh, companies you're invested in, how many shares you have from each. It's an elaborate process, but that's the name of the game if you have your money tied up into these investments passively. There's an application to uh, mutual funds and index funds as well, because this is slightly different. And there's different methods that some of the Islamic institutions advise. One of the methods is that you uh, apply this method I just described to all of the holdings. So you calculate that CRI, that cash and equivalents and receivables and inventories, the values for each company, and you prorate it to the weight of the company in the fund. So you know if you have a number of companies in that index fund, what is the weight of that company relative to the others? What's the percentage? And then you add those values to determine how much of the holdings of the fund are liable for zakat. Does that sound like something you would enjoy doing on a nice Sunday morning? Me either. It's very complicated. It's very time consuming. And this is why many experts in the field advise to do method two, which is quicker and easier. And that method two is to find that value we spoke of, that CRI value of cash and equivalents plus receivables plus inventories of a particular fund and use uh, by using 30% of the market value of the stock or fund. So this is a kind of rule of thumb. It's not a hard and fast rule. It's a rule of thumb and that's based on a survey of the market and the average CRI value of most major shares available. Uh, why is this 30% mentioned here as a rule of thumb, it's because you have to understand something really important about zakat. Let's say you are a mechanic, you fix cars, you have lots of tools that you have invested in, uh, lots of specialized equipment inside of your auto body shop, and you work on these cars and you earn money from working on these cars. If we look at your company as a whole, a part of the, the total value includes the tools of your trade, right? So your parts, your, your equipment, that's included in the value of your company, right? If you have a company, you're not just, it's not just valued at how much money it made, it's valued at what it's holding as well in terms of equipment and supplies, but you're not paying zakat on the tools of the trade, right? If you have a shop where you make watches, you pay zakat on the money you earned from making the watches, not on the value of your shop based on the cost of the tools. The tools of your trade 
uh, are not zakatable. Their value is not zakatable. So the same thing goes for a lot of these companies because it's not just their profits, it's also the other assets and the things that they use. The, so that's the way you look at it. So a lot of Muslims who have mutual funds, index funds and the likes, they work with Amana. And if you look at Amana as an example in their growth fund, if the price per share is $26.50, then 30% of that is going to be $7.95. So that means if you have 1,000 shares from Amana funds, your total zakat liable value is $7,950. And 2.5% of that is $198.75. So this is the easier method. It is far less time consuming. And this is where if you get confused or stuck, you consult with people who know what they're talking about, who can easily calculate the values of what you have in these investments. And by them calculating the value of what you have, you can determine the 2.5 of that really easily. Yeah. Yeah. So if I were to hold that, that much amount of cash, I would have to pay the cut based on twenty six fifty times thousand, not seven ninety five times thousand, right? So isn't there a discrepancy here? If you if you liquefy it and you you sell it and you have the money on hand, that's just your money. So you're paying zakat on that. But you're you are investing in this these different companies. And that investment and what, and what they're valued at is not just the profit they're making, but it's also their own value in terms of the tools of the trade that they have as a part of the assets. So this is where that rule of thumb comes in at the 30%. Uh, this is, uh, you know, if you, if you pay that full amount each year, I mean, you're entitled to pay, but you're going to end up paying more. So... You know, this is the method, this is again where fiqh is one thing and then the facts of how you determine it based on these uh, modern financial instruments is another. This is what many of the fiqh uh, councils have advised. So, okay. So as I said earlier, if you go to the beginning of these slides, the zakat on shares from here all the way to the end, this is something you can use to refer back to when you're calculating your zakat and want to figure out how you should approach it. You should then, if you need help, consult with those people who can help you crunch those numbers and determine the value. And then from there, you can easily get the 2.5%. And alhamdulillah, we, you know, we have resources in, in our communities in North America, specialists who combine between the fiqh and really detailed knowledge of how these systems work. That's just, not, that's, that's just not me, I'm not your guy. So I'm just giving you the basics here. And for most people, they're not dealing with these things, right? But if you are, here's what you have to consider. And the same can be said for dividends. Uh, if you receive uh, dividend distribution on the shares you own in the long term, 
you're going to pay zakat on those dividends as well. It's going to be significantly less uh, in most cases, but you're going to figure out what that is. And the way you do that is you find the dividend amount issued to you per share, and then you multiply it by the number of shares you own. So you have the dividend per share times the, the shares own, and then you have your zakat liable dividend amount. Uh, a simple example would be you have a company that pays you uh, 50 cents of, uh, per share, a dividend of 50% per share, and you have 100 shares. How much money is that? That's $50. Well, you just add that to your list of, uh, of, of money that you have to calculate for zakat. So you just got to figure those things out. So, it, so the principle is pretty simple, is how you determine it for that modern instrument. That's what the question is. Now, this is where we get into something probably more relevant for most people, because maybe you're not in the stock market. But a lot of people do have 401ks, and they wonder, how do I pay zakat on it? And we have to understand some basics about the 401k and what we're actually agreeing to when we set one up, because it is a contract. And that means you're bound by the terms in the contract and there's certain penalties. So these are things to consider. So you're contributing from your earnings to a set investment scheme, and that's invested and reinvested over time, managed by a fund manager, and that is released to you at a later date, right? And you and your employer are contributing matching funds to an investment account. When you retire, all of these funds are then accessible to you. You can cash it out. Does that mean you cannot access it before you retire? No, you, know, you can access it, but usually you're going to have to pay a penalty and there's the taxes involved. There, you can withdraw under certain circumstances that they term qualified distributions. And you can also elect to contribute to an IRA, which is something you do yourself. You don't do it with the employer, but it's basically working on, along the same lines. So generally, you cannot access any of your employer's contributions until you have the legal right to uh, access them, and that's retirement. If you try to access your funds before retirement or before a, you have a qualifying life event, like a first-time house purchase or disability, you're going to have to pay a penalty on top of taxes that you owe on the funds. So it's no fun trying to withdraw them early. And contractually, you're not supposed to. That's why there's a penalty in the first place. So that's the basics of how it works. With all of that in mind, how do we pay zakat on it? Because it is our money. So the question here is, do we have access to it or not? If, someone, if you loan someone money, and you don't hear from them for two or three years, and then they come back, and they say they're on hard times, and they can't pay you back, do you pay zakat on that money that's, in, that's held up in debt? No, you don't, because it's bad debt. It, that person can't pay it back to you. So you don't have access, so no zakat. But if that person can pay you back, you add that to your zakat money, because that's a good debt, you can easily get it back. So for a 401k, can you get it if you wanted it? Well, you, maybe you could, but with a penalty and with the taxes involved. So there's a couple of approaches that we can consider 
when looking at how we're going to pay zakat on the 401k. So approach number one is to treat the 401k just like you would cash money. So you treat it like cash, subtract from that the penalties you'll be charged for the early withdrawal, and subtract the amount you're going to pay in taxes on that money that you withdraw, and you pay zakat on it as if you had full access to it. That doesn't mean you're actually going to the 401k and pulling money out. Right, you keep it there, but it's as if you have and you've paid the penalties and you paid the taxes. So this is also a little bit complicated. So Khalid, for instance, Fulan, let's say he has $20,000 in his 401k. The tax bracket for him will be 15%. And he's going to have to pay a 10% penalty. Taxes will cost that person $5,000, and the penalty will be $2,500. And the amount he would receive if he withdrew it would be $18,750. So you're going to add that amount to your liquid assets and pay 2.5 on it in zakat, equaling $468. You're not literally withdrawing from the 401k, but it's as if you are after penalties and taxes. That is one approach that many have advised because they say you do have some access to it conceivably. You could take it out, albeit with penalties. I'm personally not a fan of that approach. And several others I know of are also not a fan of that approach. And there's a lot of reasons why that I'll explain to you. Uh, instead, the second approach is far more reasonable. The second approach is that you treat the 401k or your IRA like a passive investment. And if you're investing long term, as you are in a 401k, and you do not have control over the assets in the account, you're going to treat it like an illiquid passive investment. So you only pay zakat on it after you've made a full withdrawal post-tax. So you retire. you pull it out, you withdraw it, you calculate what the taxes of it's going to be, and in that first year, you pay zakat on it straight away. And after that, for every year, you're going to pay zakat on whatever you have. So you're actually not paying zakat year to year, calculating what it would be each year as it changes, and figuring out your tax bracket, subtracting that and the penalty cost. You don't do any of that. You just wait until you retire. And when you retire, you just pull it out, you withdraw it, and after you calculate for the taxes, you pay zakat on the amount you have at hand. Because you have it at hand, and you pay zakat on it. You pay the zakat for the entire amount, and then every year after that, because you have full access to it now. If you withdraw it early, you pay zakat on the net amount you withdraw after taxes and penalties. So you really... You know, that's if you're withdrawing it early, you're still going to pay zakat on it, albeit after the penalty, after the taxes. This, in, in, in my opinion, is preferred. And there's a number of reasons why. Uh, among the reasons is that as an investor in a long-term inaccessible investment, you're actually mandated by contract not to access the capital. Right, in the 401k, you're not supposed to access it. And that's a part of the contractual agreement that you're not supposed to. And it, in the agreement, if you do, 
it's like you are in breach of contract and therefore these penalties come. And if you took the money out, you're penalized because you went against the contract. Another reason is that the uh, capital in this investment is similar to a debt you don't have access to. So you're not really benefiting from it until you uh, withdraw it or in an investment until you sell it. So it's no different from something you don't have real access to. And whether like a debt or an illiquid asset, zakat would not be due until the actual funds are received. So we treat the 401k just like that. Uh, the, the first approach is possible if you want to calculate it in that way. The second approach I feel is more reasonable and easier for most people and is very straightforward compared to the year after year calculation minus the penalty cost, minus the taxes for that year and so on. So you're still paying zakat on this. You're just waiting until after your retirement. You pay everything, the zakat immediately and then after every year from the moment you have access to it. This is, Allahu A'lam, the more reasonable approach and the one I would recommend. And anytime people come and ask me about this, this is what I tell them. I say, treat it like a long-term investment you don't have access to, pay the zakat once you uh, cash it out when you retire. <coughs> so that's really it for the 401k and the IRA and the shares and dividends, index funds, mutual funds and the like. We come now to something uh, a little different and that is illiquid assets. The illiquid assets we said are those things that you cannot immediately uh, uh, sell for cash. There's a process involved and they may appreciate in value or depreciate such as property, antiques, artwork, collectibles, and so on. To understand how you pay zakat on these things, you have to understand a very important principle, that there is a difference between these items that you keep for personal use or aesthetic enjoyment and what you keep for as a store of value that you intend to sell when the value appreciates over time. You could have two different people with the same nice 1965 Mustang. One drives it around and likes the way it looks and doesn't intend to sell it. He doesn't have it as a store of value. The other only has it because he wants to hold it and sell it and get a lot of money later on. What is the difference between them? Outwardly, they look the same, but they both have the same model car, same year. The difference is the intention. One has it for personal use and aesthetic enjoyment, personal use. The other has it as a store of value, something they would sell later on in the future. That's the important principle. So if you buy the, issue, the thing for personal use or aesthetic value, you don't owe zakat on it, right? So if you have a nice, fancy medieval set of uh, knight's armor in the corner of your living room that's worth $50,000 and you just like the way it looks, you don't pay zakat on it. But if you have that same set of armor and you're holding it because at some point in the future you want to sell it, that's your intention, you will have to pay zakat on that. 
We can only determine that from the intention. And Allah knows the intention of each person, right? So if you own the items for storing value, so arbitrism over the long term, you will pay zakat. But what are you paying zakat on? Are you paying zakat on the in price that you fetch later on? So let's say you have a 65 Mustang. I don't know how much those, those things are worth, but let's say they're worth a $100,000. The sale price is $100,000, but you are really smart. You saved in high school and bought a 65 Mustang from your grandfather in 1988 for $5,000. What zakat are you paying on the 65 Mustang? Are you paying it on the $100,000 ticket price or possible sale price that is valued at or at the sale price when you got it you're actually paying the sale price you're paying the sale price so it's $5,000 I don't know of anyone who got a $5,000 Mustang but that's what you would pay once you sell it and you've made that $100,000 of course you're going to pay the zakat on that right so the important principle is you are paying zakat on the sale price uh, of the item if, if you sell it you fetch the money you pay zakat on that if you're holding it and you got it for $5,000 you could pay $5,000 I think the issue here is when you're looking at the value of it it's not always determinable so if you're paying zakat on something you pay on the sale price uh, when you're selling it and you fetch that or the price you got it for when you bought it. Now, it's logically possible that you have the two goals, like that something you like, like a car, you're driving it, but also you know that this is going to be like good investment. True. You could be driving it and using it, and then maybe you didn't ever intend to sell it, but you want to get rid of it, and now you want to sell it. Now the intention has changed. You sell it, you made the money, well, now you have the sale price, what you fetched for it at that value, you pay zakat on that. If you're just holding it over time, you're not, you're not paying uh, for the highest market value out there that you could possibly fetch for it. You're paying what you bought for it, basically. Now, an example. Uh, Zaid bought a $5,000 painting of a tree. He really likes it, and he hangs it in his living room. He doesn't intend to sell it, he just likes it. He doesn't pay zakat on it because it's for personal use, just aesthetic enjoyment. But Bakr bought a $5,000 painting of a tree as well. He doesn't like this painting even. He doesn't even have it hanging in his house. He keeps it in his storage and is waiting for its value to increase over time so he can sell it and turn a small profit. He will pay zakat on the sales price. So basically you have to consider a few different things and note that the intention may change if the intention changes then you you sold it and made money from it so the money is going to be factored into all of the rest of your money that you pay zakat on fairly simple the the issue here is if you're holding something for long term and you're not selling it you are holding it long term as a store of value if you hold gold and silver as a store of value, you're paying, you're paying zakat on that. So just as you pay zakat on gold and silver that you're holding as a store of value, you pay zakat on items that have monetary value that you hold that you intend to sell later on. Like you're a businessman and you're holding merchandise. 
So, again, these are broad principles. In the particular cases uh, people have may vary from person to person. So if a person understands the general principles, but they're struggling with how to apply that to their own case, they should consult a scholar and explain the uh, unique circumstances they're in to get a more refined answer. These are just general principles. You had a question? So recently, like I bought an SPS, which historically goes up in value, but I intend to use it while I have it. Mm -hmm. I do, I, one of the reasons I bought it is because I know in the future I'll probably be able to sell it for more than what I bought. As long as it's for personal use. So he's asking if he has something and he's using it. You're thinking like in the back of your mind, in the future, I can get rid of this if I wanted to. That's, that goes for almost anything we own. We're not paying zakat on our own cars, right? Let's say you buy a car. You know that you, if you wanted to, you drive it for five, six years, and then maybe you sell it as a used car, and you get yourself another new car. As long as you're using it, you're not paying zakat on it. The moment it's something that's a store of value that you intend to sell, and you're putting it on the market, for example, or you're holding it and letting it appreciate, it becomes an item of merchandise, right? If you're just using it, it's yours until you decide to sell it, at which case the money is taken, you calculate that into your zakat. Uh, again, if you've had it for over a hawl, of course, all right? The, the issue of real estate is similar to this, right? If you own a residence, you're not paying zakat on your own home. You don't pay zakat on the things you use. You don't pay zakat on your car. You don't pay zakat on your home. You don't pay zakat on the things you use day to day. You don't pay zakat on the tools of your trade. If you use anything right in your tools of your trade, if you have lots of dental equipment as a dentist, you don't pay zakat on that either. But if you rent out the property, then you're going to pay zakat on the earnings you're not paying zakat on the total value of the property and the holdings. You're paying zakat on the earnings from the rent. So you have a piece of property, you have a house on it. You rent out the house. And at the end of the year, let's say every month you have a tenant and every, every month you're getting $1,500 in your bank account. So that's what you're paying zakat on essentially. It's just the money you get from the rent you're not paying zakat on the actual value of the property itself for which it's appraised. Because the house is considered a personal asset, it's like the tools of the trade. Just as a dentist is not going to pay zakat on the value of his dental equipment, because that's the means of him making money, you as a landlord are not going to pay zakat on the asset itself because it's your means of making money. It's the tools of your trade as a landlord, as a property owner. You just pay zakat on the income you earn from that property. This should be fairly straightforward because I would assume that most landlords, unless they have multiple accounts going on, most landlords are receiving the checks and they're putting them right into their checking or savings account. So after a year has elapsed and they're calculating zakat, it's already in the checking or savings. They just figure out what it is. And it's a done deal. So only if the money is in a separate account would you need to figure out what those earnings are relative to your other earnings and add it to the list. Yeah. Is it 2.5% of the rental income or is it just for the 
Because you're getting income, money, so it's 2.5% because what you're getting in return for that, uh, them using that asset of yours, is currency. And the currency, the dollars, is pegged to the gold, so it's calculated at that Nisab level. No, in the Shafi school, it's pegged to silver. Yeah, so we know what you're going to be doing. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. But this is this is on the basis that what the the property is like your the tools of your trade, the means of making money, and just as you don't pay money on the tools of your trade, you don't pay zakat on that. You pay zakat on the money you earn using those tools. Uh, in a like manner, the property. You're not paying zakat on the property as such, but the earnings from the property. And because the earnings are coming through U.S. dollars, it's calculated based on the nisab of gold. So, and then it's 2.5% of whatever that is. Yes? If you don't rent it, It could be, but uh, it's still, what do you do it for? What do you have it for? For selling it later. Because the property value is going to go up. You're just holding it, right? Yeah, I think that's where you need to figure out what the value of it is as, as a whole. Yeah. So it again comes back to intention. Yeah. Yeah. The, distinct, the distinction between what is for personal use, if it's a, ho- a summer house, you're using it, right? If it's something you go in occasionally, it's for personal use, even if it's intermittent. Uh, but if you're just buying a property, then those are assets. Yeah. And their own right, they're assets. So the value of that is going to be factored in when you calculate zakat, just like it would be for uh, any other asset you're holding as a store of value. So this is where you have to figure out what those would be. But for the person who buys the property or they, let's say they, they lease out or they rent out their basement, they fix it up and they rent it out. A lot of people do that to help cover the cost of their mortgage. They're, that's coming right into their account. So essentially, it's just a means of making money. Just go to your savings or, or checking and you see how much money you have. It's already in there. So just calculate the zakat as it is. If you're just holding it, then you've got to figure out the value. Yeah. Another thing is uh, privately held companies. Right? I don't know if any of you have invested in any startups or any small businesses that are not publicly traded on the stock market. But if you have, you're going to treat them as an an investment based on the information available to you when the time of your zakat is due. This This is an unfamiliar world to me. So this is again what many of the mashayikh have discussed uh, regarding zakat on privately held companies. So Let's say you put in a substantial amount of money as an investment into a privately owned company. Uh, Let's say it's a startup making, I don't know, making Frisbees, okay? And when it comes time to calculate the zakat, you have to figure out with regard to that company, has there been any liquidity in the company? Or has there been any uh, uh, dissolution event? If there hasn't been either any liquidity, 
they haven't made money, uh, and it hasn't been dissolved, then you're going to treat it like an illiquid asset, and you're not going to pay zakat until you know what the value is. Because as long as it's not making money yet, and as long as it hasn't completely folded and collapsed, uh, you don't really know how much money is being made. So you have to wait. It's like an illiquid uh, asset, and you have to wait until you figure out how much money is being made before you determine the value of zakat. So let's give a couple of examples of what this might look like. So the liquidity event is basically an acquisition or a merger or an IPO, an initial public offering, or any other action that allows the founders or the early investors in a company to cash out all or some of their ownership shares. So that's you, right? You're the early investor in that startup. So a liquidity event is any of those events, acquisition or merger or IPO or anything that would allow you the opportunity, if you so desired, to cash out all or some of your shares. So if you have that liquidity event and you cash out everything, you say, I'm done with this company, I'm cashing out, then quite obviously you get that return and you're paying 2.5% of that. It's very simple. If you receive the shares, then go back to what we said about shares. You've got to determine the value, treat them like passive investments. Right? The dissolution event is when a company terminates its operations voluntarily or when the creditors from the company, for the company, uh, um, they terminate it. So if you have invested in a company, a substantial amount of money, and the company folds, if you receive a settlement after that, or a payout from the dissolution, well, that's money in hand. What do you do with the money in hand? 2.5%, very simple. So the issue here is not how much, it's how you get it. You're either getting it from profit or you're getting it because you received a payment or settlement because it folded. Either way, you're getting the money and you're paying the 2.5%. Or you have these shares and you treat the shares like passive investments. If you didn't receive anything, let's say the company folded and you, you know, you lost. You didn't get anything. Well, you don't get anything. How do you pay zakat on nothing? There's no zakat on you. Your investment didn't really return you anything and it's folded and that's your loss. So obviously there's no zakat on that. And again, like I said before, this is a, an area that it's not my daily bread and butter, uh, no pun intended. So if this is something that you're involved in and there's technical questions about these matters in determining what you owe or if you owe zakat, you should consult a specialist. This is just the basic principle. Now we move on to things that are a little more uh, straightforward, I would say. Uh, we go to cryptocurrency. Now, cryptocurrency is by no means straightforward, but I mean determining the zakat is relatively straightforward. And this is all predicated on my earlier talk or question that I answered in the Ask the Imam session back in March. Back in March, one of the questions in the Ask the Imam series that we do once a month was regarding cryptocurrency and whether it's permissible. And I related the view that I believe cryptocurrency is generally permissible with certain caveats and conditions 
as it is a store of value that is recognized. Because it's a store of value, that means that it is like anything that, has, that is assigned value that a person could potentially turn into currency. Therefore, it, zakat would be due on cryptocurrency. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can calculate the zakat for cryptocurrency. Some of them are very complicated, and it depends on the coin you, you possess. I'll give you the simplest way. It's very easy. Just treat it like any other currency, and determining the value of your crypto, just convert it to your local currency. If you have, if you, so let's say you have Bitcoin. Let's say you have one Bitcoin. Uh, for people who hold Bitcoin, if they're smart, they buy it and they hold it and they don't look at it each day to see what the value is. That's just enough to give them a heart attack. They just hold it and they don't see for another five, six years. But if you have to pay zakat on it, if you have put at least more than the nisab value in cryptocurrency, you're going to need to figure out what is the value at each haul. So maybe one year, I could, I could see this happening. A person puts in, let's say they put in $5,000 in cryptocurrency. U.S. dollars, they put it in in 2020. So, and then one haul goes by and they check the value of Bitcoin to the dollar and it's uh, 3100 Well, they, they lost. You know, if, it's, if we're pegging it to the dollar, they lost on their investment. So they're paying less zakat, but then maybe the next year it's 7000 So they're paying more. And then another year it's 1500 right? It's going to fluctuate so greatly. But you have to check what the value is at each haul. So let's say you put $5,000 in. A year later, you're not just going to pay zakat on $5,000 because it goes up in value. You're going to see what that value is each haul. If it says the value is 7000 you put that in your total, your, your list of income that you calculate for zakat. Pretty straightforward. All right. Now the last part. Business inventory. Some of you, some of you I know run businesses and you have inventory. Maybe you have storage where you keep that inventory uh, for, for your shops. That inventory is merchandise on which zakat is due. So how do we determine the zakat for these things? If you run a business, your inventory is going to be one of two types. It's either going to be inventory that was previously for sale, but you're not able to sell it now because it's obsolete or it's no longer being offered and it's just dead merchandise. I could think of an example. Uh, remember those fidget spinners? Remember those things the, the kids were... It, there was a time back in, I think it was 2015-ish when, in, at least in Canada, some of those things were going for $15 a pop because they were in such high demand. And I remember it was less than a year they were $3 a pop. I wonder how much they cost now. You would probably have to pay people to take them off of you. <laughs> so you have, so let's say you, you bought five boxes of fidget spinners. Each box has a hundred. And, but it's dead. No one's going to buy it from you. You're just, it's just collecting dust in your, your, your warehouse. That is dead. 
or obsolete merchandise. But could it happen in the future that people have a renewed interest in fidget spinners and you can put them back on the market? Maybe. But for the time being, it's dead merchandise. The other kind of inventory is that which you have that is uh, under contract, meaning it's basically written you know, for a company or a person and it's an accounts receivable where they're going to buy a certain amount under contract and they're going to pay you at a certain period and you agreed to this. Uh, or you just have it stored there and you take it out whenever you need it for your shop, right? So different scenarios. If you have dead stock, you have those boxes of fidget spinners, you're going to treat those like illiquid assets because you don't have a way to just quickly and readily sell them and get a price so you can get money and pay zakat on that. You, you can hold them or get rid of them if you want, uh, sell them at a lower price, but if you're holding them and they can't be sold as dead merchandise, it's illiquid. It's, it's like you don't have access to anything. If you have other inventory that's still for sale, that will sell, then you're going to pay zakat on the value of that inventory, like you would anything else. So let's say you have a shop and you have, uh, actually I gave a good example here for medical supplies. We'll read that example. Um, if the inventory is under contract, it's like you already sold it because you know they're going to pick it up from you and you know that they're going to pay you at a certain period. So if you have it under contract, it's essentially sold and you count that money that's coming from those sales based on that contract, accounts receivable. And when the receivables from those sales come in, you, the cash value is added to your assets when you calculate your zakat. Let's give a, an example to show how this works. Uh, I found this nice picture of the store called the Medical Supply Company Limited. So imagine Khalid, I always use Khalid, and, and there's a couple of Khalids here. Right? Khalid owns a medical supplies company. He has a storage unit that holds 5,000 tourniquets. We'll keep it simple. Obviously, he holds many other things, but let's just say that he's a specialist in tourniquets, only tourniquets. 3,500 of those tourniquets are under contract to all the local EMS facilities. They train with them, and they use them, and they come and pick up the tourniquets at different times, and they pay quarterly. So they're picking up these boxes of tourniquets, they take them to their facilities, they train people in using them, and they also have some that they keep in their vehicles. You know, that's conceivable. So they pick them up at different times and they pay quarterly. So Khadid has basically divested himself of 3,500 uh, tourniquets. How many does he have left in his storage? 1,500. These 1,500 have not been sold because well, maybe he sells them to individuals, maybe people order online, but let's say 1,500 are just sitting there after the period of one hawl, sitting in the back in the storage, right? 1,500 tourniquets are there for those one-off sales, for walk-ins, online orders. Each tourniquet sells for $40. So that's an aggregate value of 60,000. 
So Khalid will add this to his zakat calculation and pay 2.5% of it. So think about it. He sells 3500 at a certain price. He gets that price quarterly from the EMS facilities. That's money in the bank. He's calculating the zakat for that. But at the end of the year, let's say he goes in the back and he finds, well, I've had for over a year these 1,500 tourniquets that didn't get sold. This is merchandise I have. Each one is uh, $40. So you calculate the value, the total value. You pay zakat as if you're going to sell them. So that's what you do. If you're in retail sales, use the retail value. If it's the wholesales you're into, use the wholesale price. And that's really the simplest way of explaining it. So you go in the back, it's been with you for over a year, the value is $40 a tourniquet times 1,500, then 2.5% of that, because that's the value of what you have. And it's not dead merchandise. As soon as you pay your zakat, you're gonna probably get another order where someone picks up 100. So you're, gonna, you're making that money anyway, it just hasn't come yet, because you have this thing you're selling. Now, the accounts receivable is like a good debt. So if the EMS companies are under contract to buy from you these 3,500 each year, and they're paying you quarterly, they may have taken some of those tourniquets and you haven't received the money yet, because it hasn't, you haven't come to the end of that, to the new quarter. But you consider that good debt because they're good for it. So when you're calculating your zakat, you can say, okay, well, the company hasn't paid me yet, but they're under contracts. They'll be paying me in four months. They're good for it. So it's as if I have that money already. I'm going to put that in my sheet when I calculate my zakat. So that is pretty much it. And all of this explain some of the underlying principles behind the zakat calculation and determination of nisab for various uh, uh, sources of income and assets, liquid and illiquid. The difficulty comes with you have multiple streams of income and you have good debt and bad debt. You have merchandise, you have this and that, you have 401ks. There, there has to be a way to simplify that process that's much simpler than just taking this class because I doubt you could calculate your zakat just from taking this class. You gotta get a chart. You need to get something that you can put on paper. And for this reason, next week inshallah, we wanna look at a sample calculation chart. We're gonna take Khalid, that guy with the, the medical supply company, and we're gonna pry into his life and know what's in his bank account, his savings, his checking, the debts owed to him that are good and bad, the, 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 the coat of armor that he has in his house that he wants to sell, that 65 Mustang. We're gonna calculate all these things in a chart, tally it all up, and as a practical exercise, we wanna determine what's his zakat gonna be. And I want you to do it with me so that we determine that we all get the same numbers. So this is an exercise for you, it's an exercise for me, of not just applying the rules, but also thinking about the different sources and how we tally them all up. So that's the practical exercise, inshallah. If you do that, inshallah, successfully, I think you'll have no problem whatsoever doing it for yourself. 
just uh, you know these basic principles. We do need to talk a little bit about zakat al-fitr. It takes two minutes. Then we talk about the recipients of zakat. So once you've done all of this, it has to go somewhere. And it can't just go to whoever you want. It has to go to, to a very specific class of people, eight different types of people. And those people have certain qualities. We need to learn who they are, can, who can receive zakat, and who cannot receive zakat, so that we're not giving it to the wrong person. And inshallah, we want to talk a little bit about the inner aspects of giving zakat and the outer manners of giving zakat. Meaning, so when you pay it, what should be your inner state and your intention, and what, is the, what are the manners you should observe as you give that zakat to the deserving? That's very important. So we'll try to wrap that up. You know, and I some, you know, sometimes I say, that's the last class. And we find it is not. So all bets are off. We could have five classes, but I'm, I'm aiming to get it done in, uh, next week in, as a final class, inshallah ta'ala. And I want to remind you again of the disclaimer that I mentioned before. When things are complex and you have your money in various streams, uh, these are just the basic principles. If you have your money in uh, various places and you have to calculate that zakat, you need to know how to do it. The practical side of determining that is on you. You just need to know that you have to do it. And there's ways of doing it. If this doesn't make sense, consult a specialist. And uh, <laughs> that's not me. Consult someone who knows how to calculate, say, the value of the stock that you hold so that they can give you as an accurate a number as possible so you can pay your zakat inshallah ta'ala. Hada wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.